Welcome to part two of the top 10 non-fiction books recommendations list. I'm Tom, one of the teachers here at Intrepid English. But before we begin, there's some vocabulary we need to go through. Compile, compiling, verb. Produce a list or book by assembling information collected from other sources. The human condition, phrase. The characteristics and experiences of being human, including birth, growth, emotion, aspiration, conflict, and mortality. Unprecedented, adjective, never done or known before. Paramount, adjective, more important than anything else, supreme. Utmost, adjective, most extreme, greatest. Scroll, verb, write something in a hurried, careless way. Shy away, phrasal verb. To avoid someone or to be unwilling to do something because you are nervous, afraid, or not confident. Memoir, noun. A historical account or biography written from personal knowledge. Premise, noun. A previous statement or proposition from which another is inferred or follows as a conclusion. Manifests, verb, show a quality or feeling by one's acts or appearance, demonstrate. Ode, noun, a lyric poem, typically one in the form of an address to a particular subject, written in varied or irregular meter. Cozy, adjective, giving a feeling of comfort, warmth and relaxation. Prose, noun, written or spoken language in its ordinary form, without metrical structure. Autobiographical, adjective, of a written work, dealing with the writer's own life. To go down that road, phrasal verb, to take a particular course of action. Grizzlies, noun. An animal of a large race of the brown bear native to North America. Undeniable. Adjective. Unable to be denied or disputed. Dismantle. Verb. Take a machine or structure to pieces. Behold. Verb. See or observe someone or something especially of remarkable or impressive nature. Well, welcome back. I hope you've all been reading or thinking about reading over the past few weeks. Maybe you've been compiling your own lists of recommendations. Last time, I talked about five of my top ten non-fiction books. There were books about World War II, murders and grief. Dark subjects, I know. But I feel these books have the ability to touch us so deeply and give us the opportunity to explore the human condition. Here in part two, I will explore adoption, gun crime, writing, reading, and brain surgery. During these unprecedented times, entertainment is paramount. But something struck me. The longer this situation continues, the longer our favorite TV shows will remain on hold, and films will continue to be unmade. That is why books are of the utmost importance. We need new stories, so here are five for you.
The Mistress's Daughter by A.M. Holmes, published by Granter in London, 2007. A.M. Holmes is one of my all-time favourite writers. She's not to everyone's taste. I once gave this book to a friend and she wasn't impressed. But to me, Holmes's language is so raw, honest and sharp that it draws me in. She slices, her words cut. The truth is hard, and Holmes does not shy away from it. Her memoir contains six essays. The titular one, and heart of the book, concerns home discovering she is adopted. Her biological parents enter the picture, and Holmes's inner turmoil is chronicled throughout the book. Here's an example. I am so angry, so sad, hating everyone for who they are and for everything they are not. It is the rising of emotion, as everything I can't articulate begins whirling inside me. I gun the engine. I imagine driving the car into the house, crashing through, desperate to get past what is blocking me. I picture the cabinets emptying out, dishes breaking, the engine punching through the back of the refrigerator, a headlight coming through the crisper door. I hope the dog isn't in the kitchen that no one has gone in for a snack. I sit with a foot on the gas, waiting to do it, and then thinking about my mother and my mother's dishes, how much she loves her dishes, how much I love my mother, how I wouldn't want to break the dishes, and how I wouldn't be quite the same if I went into the house first and emptied all the shelves and then came back out again and went crashing through. What always astounds me about this memoir is how childish Holmes's biological parents are. I remember scrolling into the margins, selfish, and oh my god, really, and say no, when I first read this book. And I very rarely write in books, but I couldn't help myself. As a big fan, I was reading the memoir to see if there was any insight into Holmes's writing. Apart from where she notes down a phrase that would later become a title of one of her stories, and when she poked herself in the eye with the New York Times as she was reading a review of one of her books... The memoir contains very little notions of Holmes as a writer, until you take a step back. For Holmes's descriptions of her parents reflect her own work. Holmes's incredible ability to lay a character bare makes him seem childish, but in fact, Holmes just shows the longing, desperation, and naivety we as adults all feel. I'm going to read a little section from the book again. This is when she's considering the idea of being adopted. The fragile, fragmented narrative, the thin line of story, the plot of my life, has been abruptly recast. I am dealing with the divide between sociology and biology, the chemical necklace of DNA that wraps around the neck, sometimes like a beautiful ornament, our birthright, our history, and other times like a choke chain. So the next book on my list, number four, is Last Day on Earth by David Van, published by the University of Georgia Press in Georgia, 2011. After my father's suicide, I inherited all his guns. I was 13. Late at night, I reached behind my mother's coats in the hall closet the barrel of my father's 300 magnum rifle. It was cold and heavy, 
smelled of gun oil. I carried it down the hallway, through kitchen and pantry into the garage, where I turned on the light and gazed at it. A bear rifle with a scope, bought in Alaska for grizzlies. The world had been emptied, but this gun had a presence still, an undeniable power. My father had used it on deer. It sounded like artillery, would tear the entire shoulder off a deer hundreds of yards away. I pulled back the bolt, sighted in on a cardboard box across the garage. A box of track for an electric train and one small rail sticking up filled the scope. I held my breath as my father had taught, squeezed carefully, slowly, heard a metallic click. When I was a student at the University of Warwick, doing my master's in creative writing, David Vann was one of the tutors. He often spoke about the music of language. Words mattered, he would tell us, and they are not to be wasted. I've read the majority of Vann's prose, which is highly autobiographical, and I would recommend. But his non-fiction book, Last Day on Earth, stands out. I vividly remember reading this book. I remember the chills on the back of my neck. In Last Day on Earth, Van explores Steve Kazimierzak, a student at Northern Illinois University who killed five people and wounded 18 others in a shooting that took place on Valentine's Day 2008. This is reason enough to have chills, but Van goes further. The book doesn't just explore the massacre, but Van's history with guns, and the terrifying truth that when he was younger, he had contemplated going into his school and shooting everyone. Van could have been Kazimierzak. He could have gone down that road, but he didn't. Why? What set him apart from Kazimierzak? I would call this book one of the bravest I've ever read. Van doesn't shy away from his darkness. He dissects it, owns it, and as a result, is at peace with it. I'm going to read another section from the book. I'll probably just dip in and out of this section because it's quite long. A couple of days after my father shot himself, on the phone talking to my stepmother saying, I love you, but I'm not going to live without you, she received flowers from him. A romantic gift from the grave, the same as Jessica will receive. And how can anyone ever make sense of this kind of gift? One of my former colleagues at FSU, Thomas Joyner, is an expert on suicide, and he maintains that suicide is not a selfish act. That's not the way they're thinking, he says. They often believe their suicide will help the people they leave behind. My father, for instance, believed his insurance policies would help us, better than mirroring us in his financial problems with the IRS. We'd be better off in the end. Thomas Joyner's father committed suicide too. After 28 years of suicide bereavement, I'm moving closer to Joyner's view. At first, suicide seemed like the most selfish act possible, and I felt rage and shame. Now I'm not so sure. But here's what my father did to my stepmother. Here's how he was a monster. Eleven months before my father's suicide, my stepmother lost her parents to a murder-suicide. Her parents had a big house on top of a hill, overlooking an entire valley in Lakeport, Northern Carolina. 
a valley with pear orchards and hills all around. They had horses. They were well off from a successful pool and spa business. I spent a lot of time at that house, riding all-terrain vehicles and dirt bikes, swimming in the pool, learning to play backgammon, hunting and shooting. My stepmother's father had a gun collection, pistols and shotguns in cases, a room with dark wood and velvet, many of the guns rare. My stepmother's mother felt bitter about her husband. He had cheated on her, was thinking of leaving her for another woman. Their years together were not what she had thought they were, her life a kind of lie. I remember her sitting in the kitchen on a stool, her little dog running around, clicking its nails on the linoleum. She chain-smoked, had a raspy smoker's laugh. I was always a little scared of her. One day she went to the gun collection and picked out a shotgun and a pistol. She shot him at close range with the shotgun, killing him, then killing herself with the pistol. Killing him had not been the plan, though. She included a letter to him in her suicide notes. I'm really sorry for your last miserable 15 years. I really didn't know. I really thought you loved me. Above all, Raleigh, be happy because I'm taking your hell away. I've loved you more than you will ever know. This was a small town, a small community, and for their five children, the shame was nearly unbearable. But they all stayed. They fought each other bitterly over the will, over the money. My stepmother had already lost her daughter's father to a car accident, then her parents to murder-suicide. She told my father right there, the end, don't do this to me, Jim. But he did. And he sent her flowers that she'd receive afterward. And to me, those flowers are the greatest cruelty. So although Jessica Beatty has lied to me over and over and should have seen warning signs and is one of the most psychologically screwed up people I have ever met, buried deep in denial and still not able really to acknowledge Steve's victims, the people he killed and wounded, I will never stop feeling sorry for her. Can you imagine believing a proposal is coming on Valentine's Day then finding out instead that he's a mass murderer? The next book on the list, number three, is Howard's End is on the Landing by Susan Hill, published by Profile Books in London, 2009. I thought I would include a warmer, cosier option. I appreciate we're all stuck in our houses, and the idea of another day looking out of the window, reading a book about death or murder, may be enough to drive you insane. So let's focus on the power of books by looking at Susan Hill's Howard's End is on the Landing. This is a rare treat of a memoir. The premise is a very simple one. One day, Susan Hill, the prolific author of classic novels such as The Woman in Black, was trying to find a book in her house. She couldn't find it. But what she did find were numerous books she owned, but hadn't read. Therefore, Hill decided to not buy books for a year, and just read the ones at home. What manifests is an ode to reading. Here's an example. Here are the diaries on the table. I could spend my year reading from home on diaries alone. And if I had to pick one, Virginia Woolf's A Writer's Diary is never far away from my bedside table. Well-worn, much-loved, a constant inspiration. It was, by way of that single volume, 
extracted by Leonard from her many volumes of diaries, that I was led to her novels, and so to the woman I have loved and admired and been fascinated by for fifty years. And still am, still am. But I know the book so well, have read the print off its pages for so long, that it has become part of me. I can't stress it enough. This book is cosy. Get into your pajamas, snuggle up with a hot cup of tea or a glass of wine, you could go either way, and let yourself read about reading and this magical realm of books. I thought I'd just read from the beginning, which is called Starting Point. It began like this. I went to the shelves on the landing to look for a book I knew was there. It was not. But plenty of others were, and among them I noticed at least a dozen I realised I had never read. I pursued the elusive book through several rooms, and did not find it in any of them. But each time I did find at least a dozen, perhaps two dozen, perhaps two hundred, that I had never read. And then I picked out a book I had read, but had forgotten I owned, and another, and another. After that came the books I had read, knew I owned, and realised I wanted to read again. I found the book I was looking for in the end, but by then it had become far more than a book. It marked the start of a journey through my own library. The next book on the list, number two, is The Cost of Living by Deborah Levy, published by Penguin Random House in Great Britain, 2018. I've selected The Cost of Living for two reasons. It's brilliant, and it continues with the cosy theme. The reason I return to this book is to reread the description of Deborah Levy's shed, or the shed her friend gave her. A writer's room of one's own is a magical place. Worlds are built here. I've always been fascinated by these spaces, whether that be photos or descriptions. So here's Deborah Levy talking about her shed. It was not a posh shed. The lawnmower would have felt at home in it, but it did have four windows looking out to the garden, a writing desk that had belonged to Adrian with a green leather top, and some Formica bookshelves built across the back wall. I was able to live with the ashes of the golden Labrador, known to many of Adrian's readers as Daisy the Dog of Peace. Celia said, Well, you can get a lot of books on those shelves, but I'm not going to unsettle Daisy. No one was allowed to interrupt me on her watch. To knock on the door and solicit a conversation, the weather, the news, the arrival of cake, or even to convey an urgent message from the mistress of the house. To be valued and respected in this way, as if it were the most normal thing in the world, was a new experience. I did not know it then, but I would go on to write three books in that shed, including the one you are reading right now. This book is more than that, of course. This living autobiography continues the themes explored in Levy's previous book, Things I Don't Want to Know. Womanhood and gender politics was going on to discuss what it means to dismantle one's life, expand it, and put it back together again. With this in mind, Levy chronicles the divorce from her husband, moving into a new home and trying to form a new life, where she is the main character. As she says, it was in that very shed that she began to write in the first person, to use the form, I. I just want to read from the beginning. 
the chapter is called The Big Silver. As Orson Welles told us, if we want a happy ending, it depends on where we stop the story. One January night, I was eating coconut rice and fish in a bar on Colombia's Caribbean coast. A tanned, tattooed American man sat at the table next to me. He was in his late forties, big muscled arms, his silver hair pinned into a bun. He was talking to a young Englishwoman, perhaps 19 years old, who had been sitting on her own reading a book, but after some ambivalence had taken up his invitation to join him. At first he did all the talking. After a while she interrupted him. Her conversation was interesting, intense and strange. She was telling him about scuba diving in Mexico, how she had been underwater for 20 minutes and then surfaced to find there was a storm. The sea had become a whirlpool, and she had been anxious about making it back to the boat. Although her story was about surfacing from a dive to discover the weather had changed, it was also some sort of undisclosed hurt. She gave him a few clues about that. There was someone on the boat who she thought should have come to save her. And then she glanced at him to check if he knew what she was talking about. The storm in a disguised way. He was not that interested, and managed to move his knees in a way that jolted the table so that her book fell to the floor. He said, You talk a lot, don't you? And out the ends of her hair while she watched two teenage boys selling cigars and football shirts to tourists in the cobbled square. It was not that easy to convey to him, a man much older than she was, that the world was her world too. He had taken a risk when he invited her to join him at his table. After all, she came with a whole life and libido of her own. It had not occurred to him that she might not consider herself to be the minor character and him the major character. In this sense, she had unsettled a boundary, collapsed a social hierarchy, broken with the usual rituals. So the last book, number one on my list, is Do No Harm by Henry Marsh, published by Orion Books in London, 2014. The saying, it's not brain surgery, means the task in question is easy to accomplish, that it lacks complexity and is simple to understand. Brain surgery, therefore, is difficult, it requires the utmost attention due to its complexity and difficulty. Henry Marsh is a brain surgeon, and Do No Harm is his riveting memoir chronicling many extraordinary cases, as well as his own personal feelings about the current state of the NHS. This book is a rare feat, a peek behind the curtain. When I read it for the first time, I felt like I was going to work with Marsh. I was a junior doctor in some way, learning from him, listening to him. We also see Marsh's life. He needs to go shopping, get some rest, clean his house, have a social life and family time, whereas the very next hour he might be called in to perform a surgery. This is what is most startling and wonderful about the book. We see brain surgeons as living gods, but Marsh is just a man, flawed, emotional, human. I'm going to read a section from the book, not the easiest section, but I think it's true, which is what Henry Marsh does well. Our bodies will not let us off the hook of life without a struggle. You don't just speak a few meaningful last words to your tearful family and then breathe your last. 
If you don't die violently, choking or coughing or in a coma, you must gradually be worn away, the flesh shriveling off your bones, your skin and eyes turning deep yellow if your liver is failing, your voice weakening, until near the end you haven't even the strength to open your eyes, and you lie motionless on your deathbed, the only movement your gasping breath. Gradually, you become unrecognizable. At least, you lose all the details that make your face characteristically your own, and the contours of your face are worn away down to the anonymous outlines of your underlying skull. You now look like the many old people, with drawn and dehydrated faces, identical in their hospital gowns, to whose bedside I would be summoned in the early hours when I worked as a junior doctor down the long and empty hospital corridors to certify death. Your face becomes that of every man, close to death, a face we all know, if only from the funeral art of Christian churches. This is um, Henry Marsh after he's told a patient that there's nothing more he can do. I drove away in a turmoil of confused emotions. I quickly became stuck in the rush hour traffic and furiously cursed the cars and their drivers as though it was their fault that this good and noble man should die and leave his wife a widow and his young children fatherless. I shouted and cried and stupidly hit the steering wheel with my fists and I felt shame, not at my failure to save his life. His treatment had been as good as it could be but at my loss of professional detachment, and what felt like the vulgarity of my distress compared to his composure and his family's suffering, to which I could only bear impotent witness. And then this is a little lighter note of the book, where um, obviously if you're a brain surgeon, you do these incredible things every day, and then you've got to go and pick up groceries. So it's a strange dichotomy. I cycled home, stopping off at the supermarket to get some shopping. Catherine, the younger of my two daughters, was staying with me for a few days and was to cook supper. I had agreed to do the shopping. I joined a long queue of people at the checkout. And what did you do today? I felt like asking them. Annoyed that an important neurosurgeon like myself should be kept waiting after such a triumphant day's work. But then I thought of how the value of my work as a doctor is measured solely in the value of other people's lives, and that included the people in front of me in the checkout queue. So I told myself off and resigned myself to waiting. Besides, I had to admit to myself that soon I will be old and retired, and then I will no longer count for much in this world. I might as well start getting used to it. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. It's been wonderful to read you sections of my favourite books, um, and I hope you go on to read them. Please share any of your own book recommendations in the comments below. If you have any questions regarding the vocabulary, simply send me a message or ask me a question in the comments. Thank you again. I'm Tom, one of the teachers here at Intrepid English. Music